This is My Montessori Life, a podcast that holds up a unique lens to contemporary social, cultural, and political issues. Maria Montessori aimed to reform humanity by building a better human being from the start, preparing young children for a life of profound self-determination, empathy, and wisdom. Everything to which an advanced civilization should aspire. The podcast's regular hosts are Barbara Isaacs, President of Montessori Europe, and one of the world's leading authorities on Montessori, and David Getman, author of the teacher's textbook Basic Montessori and founder of the software firm My Montessori Child, which sponsors this podcast. In this second of three podcasts on the theme of activism, Barbara and David are joined by three guests. Merlin Matthews, a lifelong activist and social entrepreneur whose reputation as Dr. Bike at the London School of Economics grew into a pioneering intersectional charity called Recycle, addressing both ecology and poverty. And Blue Sanford, who is still only 18, but is already well known as a founding youth member of Extinction Rebellion, a best-selling author and a literally underground protester against overdevelopment. And Wendelin Bellinger, a seasoned Montessorian, academic lecturer, and now board member at Montessori Europe. Merlin, to start, please could you reflect on what you think is the most effective way to achieve social change? I'm a big fan of multi-pronged attack, and rather than just having one approach, having, yeah, changing from within and changing from without and changing people's opinions and empowering people because often we tend to think, oh, it's just little me on my own. There's nothing I can do. And whether that's by design or we've just fallen into it. And whether the sort of schooling system, I would suggest, has got a, an angle to play on that. And rather, I want people to be able to, yeah, say, I can make a difference. And yeah, it's only we are. It, it, we are just a collection of individuals, and it's only individuals who ever make a difference, one way or the other. So, Merlin, I've known you for many years, and I realise I don't know anything about your upbringing. What was what was it like, and how did it shape your adult life as a social entrepreneur? My father is an entrepreneur, and he set up a business selling posh yachts and. I went to the LSE and I was thinking city slicking and um, I then discovered the short-term crazy nature of the world and, and thought to sack that off and I became Dr. Bike fixing bikes for beers of a Friday evening at the LSE and I was asked for advice on setting up a factory for bikes in Haiti by a lady who used to come for the bike fixing and I said I'd give her a hand and I really fell into the uh, charity Shipping Bicycles to Africa. I was always slightly rebellious, and I've never smoked a cigarette, for example. I'm not big on sort of peer pressure. I enjoy the outdoors, and it was also at the LSE that I got involved in campaigning against um, the war and the, the massive march we had in London and some friends at the LSE, because I had a car, they got me to drive them up to an anti-road protest site in the north of the UK. And that was my 
sort of entry into and it was the very first anti-road tree village against the m65 and i really fell in love with the people there so what's the difference in your view between being an activist which you started off as and and then you know developing the charity being a social entrepreneur is do you feel that you know the entrepreneuring is putting activism into action in a different way or I guess we need both because we need policy change at the top through activism and and then we need action at the grassroots as well or what's your view on that absolutely as I mentioned earlier the multi-pronged approach and at the at university we were boycotting South African fruit and sort of and, and going and marches free Nelson Mandela and People can make definitely make an impact with their wallet and sort of choosing where you buy and what you buy. And the activism is there was there wasn't any way that the government were going to let a bunch of sort of hippies, for want of a sort of a narrowing down, um, stop them building this road. They would have called in the army if they had to because they're in charge type of thing. However. It was raising the awareness of the public. It was increasing the cost of the whole building because they need to hire a whole load of security and police and what have you. And although we lost the battle, I believe we won the war because there was at the time with Thatcher a big campaign for building a load, load more roads. And um, they, that got shelved due to, um, in part, our actions. And so... To answer your question, activism is sort of putting yourself out there and sort of raising awareness and sort of pushing for change. And then social entrepreneurism is kind of sort of business for good and enabling change through a slightly different route. There's, there's, there's no one way to do anything, I say. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So... Um... At the London School of Economics, you studied management theory, of all things. So was there anything that you could derive from your course that um, that was helpful in addressing issues like alleviating poverty, recycling, and things like that? The course was very theoretical and meant for people sort of running countries and joining the World Bank and what have you. Um, so it wasn't terribly useful in that way. Um, it gives a certain kudos and I didn't know how much kudos the LSE had at the time. I remember turning up on the first day and people going, wow, I can't believe I'm here. And I'm like, hmm. And it was just happened to be the closest university I could get with myself and my then, or my then girlfriend when it was totally by happenstance, I ended up there. Um, so there wasn't that, that wasn't that much in your formal studies that you found useful. I mean, surely some of some of your organizing uh, skills and things like that must have come a little bit from sitting in hours and hours of lectures about how to organize and how to manage things. A little bit. And I'm also, I did quite a few courses subsequently with Bond and, and various other NGO training people. And I'm a total fiend for personal growth and reading books and going on courses and will continue to be so. But uh, Blue, was there anything in your, I know that you, uh, you've you left formal education fairly just a couple of years ago, but, um, or at least suspended it. So, but was there anything you could remember from your formal education that contributed to your activism? Um, 
I think I went to a very hippie school in kind of right by the heath and we had a big field and grounds. We kind of ran wild a bit. Um, So I think that was really, you know, just allowing us to be kind of a bit feral um, and really appreciate like outside um, and the woods and, you know, kind of just running around. Yeah, yeah. So it felt completely natural, actually, to make the transition. It was, yeah. Yeah. And I've always, you know, I grew up very outside and kind of connected to um, to going on walks and and kind of really, you know, feeling this wild world. Yeah, yeah. And and Wendelin, do you your daughter's? She's fourteen now. Yes, well remembered. Yes, yeah. she's fourteen. And do you feel that your that her formal education is is helping with the right values, giving her the right context? Uh, my gut reaction is no. Um, uh huh. So my daughter went to a Montessori nursery um, and is now, and then went on in private education, um, primary and the now secondary school. Um, I think the curriculum, uh, both in the primary and secondary uh, um, parts, the curriculum encourages engagement with um social justice projects but it's still all adult driven and what is lacking is um is is support of of principles so their true voice the children's true voice isn't encouraged it isn't welcomed um you know in primary school uh, if if there was an injustice they wouldn't be allowed to argue against the teacher because the teacher is, you know, up here, whereas the children are below. The teacher is superior to the children and they must conform to what the teacher expects of them. And that same, um, you know, in primary school when these situations arose, she would come home indignant, whereas now in secondary school, she's just jaded. <laughs> um, and she, right. she doesn't expect anything else. Yeah. So can you see her um, personally getting involved in activism at this stage or at the moment? She's a little bit cynical about it. I think she's a little bit cynical about it. Um, and so it's, 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 not, it's not something that she's engaging with uh, on a very active level. Um, we, we engage as a family in, um, you know, with, with nature um, and we talk about these issues, but I don't see her actively engaging at the moment. There's there's not much room for them to find their own cause at school. Um, it's 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 teachers' causes, very very sound causes, but nevertheless causes that are put forward by the teacher, um, yeah. and and that might not speak to every child. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's finding their own voice is, is not, is not, um, promoted. Right. Right. So Merlin, you found your voice through these protest movements and then turned your attention to developing your cycle skills into the charity as it was to become, 
um, who helped? I mean, was were there obstacles? Were there you know uh, issues that you had to deal with in order just to get started, or did it all kind of grow organically? Getting off the ground was a major problem because there was a catch twenty two of not having a track record, making it hard to get funding, meaning you can't get a track record, and sort of round in circles. Um, that was really really hard. Whereas if you had a business plan, you could go to a bank and they could lend you some money and the risk they don't get it back. But your, your business plan would, would suggest it would be okay. I found that piggybacking off the success of an existing charity was really helpful. And so I said, I was working with these guys. They've been doing the same thing for 10 years. And that gave me an instant sort of track record. And they paid for a container to go to South Africa and I managed to get a discount on the shipping and then put that money and the bit of money I'd raised towards sending a container to Haiti, which was the original plan. And that then had a track record and, and, and got it going. And it's very, yeah, it was, it was it, I did it unpaid for a few years, sporadically paid for a few years, and then gradually sort of grew the team and sort of handed over different bits of the job. And then it turned into more of a managing thing and less of a doing the various different roles. And it ended up with, yeah, you know, departments and teams and, and what have you, and supported by a lot of good volunteers. Yeah. I mean, Recycle is such a remarkable charity because it has um, a kind of 360-degree impact. You know, it, it helps the bike donors, so the families who are looking in their sheds and finding something to donate. So to teach them about recycling and, and conserving resources, it gives uh, rehabilitative work to young offenders, I think, in some of the centers where you pack and, and prepare the bikes. And it gives transport to African villagers, school children and health workers, and even training and tooling up villagers for bike maintenance um, so that they can, you know, they have actually an income they can live on. So it's kind of everybody benefits in the process. Um, it's, yeah, I mean, it's unusual as a charity because although it has a, a clear mission, it's, you know, it's always looking to have that activist approach of saying, you know, how can we make change in every, in everything we do, not just, you know, not just do the job and go home and, you know, put your feet up. So what, what do you see as it's, as the most important of all those impacts, which I mean, you know, not your favorite child, but what, what do you see as the most important aspect of its impact over the years that you were running it the biggest impact is on the people in africa who are walking to get to school walking to fetch water that's that's the the, the fat juicy impact the the as you mentioned the win 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 thing because if you didn't have the people over here donating the bikes all the people over here donating the money to pay to to run the whole thing um and there's, yeah, there's a lot of different benefits all tied together and the logistics help. And actually the partnership with Halfords, so we've got drop-off points across the UK, which make the logistics of getting a bike to us very easy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all, all of that contributes to this um, amazing, you know, impact it has in all directions. Barbara, in your experience as being at the as a manager in in the Montessori movement and a leader in now in Europe, but also um, in in an academic world of 
training new Montessori teachers, was was there a similar kinds of challenges and opportunities, you know, to have to do things in a Montessori way, really, for in all directions? Or was it more a case of, you know, people turning up, getting doing their job and, and going home again? Certainly in the last 15 years, we have always tried to be involved in some kind of activist project. So we have fundraised with the students to support training uh, of Montessori teachers in South Africa. And we raised enough to be able to train five teachers um, so that they could go to their villages and set up uh, Montessori teacher training. Uh, we have... Uh, it has not been something that has been uh, huge, but there was always awareness that we are trying to contribute towards the well-being of some people um, by, at the same time, spreading the Montessori approach. So, for example, we have trained some... Um, Women in northern India, uh, we have uh, worked training teachers in Pakistan in the Skatistan project where women teach skating to young women in Pakistan in order to empower them. Um, but it, it has not been that Montessori message of social justice and solidarity has not been very strongly promoted within the Montessori community. And it is something that we are trying to raise awareness, uh, particularly in Montessori Europe, through linking with the Sustainable Development Goals and empowering teachers to help children understand their role in changing the world or their potential to contribute to the lives of other people too. Yeah. I mean it's it, it's integral to the whole Montessori ethos to to be giving. It's um and, and to understand yourself and then also to be thinking of others. And Blue, you must have met some amazing people in all your activist enterprises. So you must have um made some great friends and discovered ways of life which you didn't know existed and yeah. found all kinds of camaraderie so it, definitely tell us about that um i think i my my dad's been an activist for kind of almost his whole life or something um and so i'd kind of already encountered a lot of these ideas about activism and social change and stuff but i kind of i hadn't quite internalized it and then i started going out and and doing it for myself and meeting all these different people um which yeah i think is a really interesting perspective um to just kind of talk to everyone that you meet <laughs> yeah and and also people working not just on the causes that you know in the in the situations you met them but themselves going off and doing all kinds of other great mm. work um in other directions and that would introduce you to you know, other social causes and things to get involved in. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think like, yeah. uh, as Merlin was saying, like the kind of multi-pronged attack, I think that's like, you know, just go from all angles. Um, and there's people doing such interesting stuff with that and working with kind of people in government and all these other charities and yeah. 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 That's amazing. So, um, Merlin, you're, you're connected with, um, the school for social entrepreneurs um, and obviously that has it as its mission to spread the skills across lots of different causes. 
So what, what's been your experience of that organization? It was very inspiring for me. At the time when I was setting up the charity, I was living in deepest Essex and there was no one doing anything remotely like that that I was aware of. They, they may well have been in different pockets. And so coming up to London and spending a week at a time with people also setting up or pursuing sort of new enterprises and sort of impactful and facing similar challenges and overcoming them and having guest speakers who had been down this road previously and it was incredibly inspiring and also michael young who set it up was uh, yeah uh, i mean he set up the open university and consumers association and many many different things very inspiring guy and the essence of social enterprise is that you can do business for good and business does not need to be at the expense of the employees or the consumers or the environment the idea is that it can be again a win-win-win thing you can make some make a profit if it's in a business and help the people and help the planet at the same time and there are um, there's a new thing called a b corp which is a sort of a company and at different levels of income they have different needs to sort of assess themselves and, and to be assessed and I mean, Patagonia is a big, massive company that do both social good and environmental good. Um, they're, they're a good one to look at. Yeah. And um, have you taught yourself, other social entrepreneurs, have you used your experience and skills to help other people get started? I've, uh, I've been advising uh, many people over the years on setting up a charity and on sort of legal aspects to do with charities. And yeah, many, many, many people have asked for help, less so with social enterprise. Um, but the, so, the, the School for Social Entrepreneurs has been growing and spreading internationally, and they are still going strong. And I've actually attended, they, they run courses, sort of drop-in courses that anyone can attend um, in yeah, various places, including central London. They're, they are a good bunch. Blue, what's your sense of of the sort of relationship between the people you know and the you know that sort of out there activists, you know, putting themselves at risk and you know presenting real resistance on the ground to things? What? How do you feel? I mean, I know you're young still, but how do you feel about how that relates to the more organized sorts of efforts to make change or to help people and so on? Is is it a symbiotic relationship? Is it a bit of scorn one way or the other? <laughs> what, what, what do you think? What's, what's I, your personal view? I think it's very symbiotic. I think like, you know, you can't, um, in, in theories of social change, it's, it's really important to have, you know, this both direct action on the streets, um, frontline resistance and working kind of outreach with with normal people and working with the people in power and the people who maybe have power um in kind of you know actors or famous celebrities or whatever um so i think it's incredibly important uh there is a bit of scorn from some like frontline activists towards people working like within the established system as a kind of like you know don't uh 
we don't want to engage with with people we don't agree with, um, which I think is is quite damaging actually to the movement. Um, yeah, so I I think it's incredible. Like all, you know, all activism, all the different ways of working are really important. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I mean, I agree with your view, but I can understand why people who are yeah, definitely you know not sitting in comfortable offices at desks <laughs> making phone calls to mm. you know MPs or whatever why they're not really on the same level as people who are you know confronting the problem mm. face on kind of thing. I can I can understand yeah both perspectives, mm. um, but how do you see yourself, Blue, as you know going? continuing in this direction i mean you've got your whole life ahead of you but you know continuing in this direction of 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 being at the front lines or can you see ways that you might want to get involved in organizing um i think i i did a little bit of organizing when i first started getting into activism with extinction rebellion and i came to the conclusion that i'm just a really bad organizer <laughs> it's really not my strong suit um so I kind of, I, I want to be doing what is most effective. And I think for me, what's most effective is this frontline resistance. Um, yeah. But yeah, I'm, you know, I'm really interested in all these different approaches and kind of want to explore them more and learn about them. Um, yeah. Particularly kind of, um, I'm, I'm getting more into kind of regenerative things and uh, trying to support people rather than be right at the front of the fight <laughs> yeah sure i think everybody in the room has um for different reasons ex uh, negative experiences of charities um not the charities <laughs> missions themselves but you know how the organizations can go wrong mm. um and so yeah i mean i guess that can happen as well even you know in in activist circles you know where somebody you know, becomes violent instead of mm -hmm. applying nonviolence and that kind of thing. So I think, you know, all human nature can be skewed. But um, yeah, how do you feel about that, Merlin? How do you feel, I mean, without, you know, going into any detail about the charities, you know, how, how do you feel about that? How do charities or how do social enterprises stay on track and not get sidelined by personalities and human it's, conflict <laughs> it's an interesting question and it's funny i've had various issues running a charity and a naive youthful part of me was thinking that sort of charities are for good and only people are going to be wanting to help and only going to be having the the the, the greatest good at heart however <laughs> the brutal truth of it is that that humans are fallible and we've all got our issues and our histories and our, our our stories and yeah and and char charities um nor the arts are exempt from politics and sort of people going off on off on one what i would say with my recent work having a code of honor and having rules in place to protect the values of the organization or the values of the relationship are important because they say that um, when our emotions go up our intelligence goes down which fits in with the sort of blood flow in the brain you can measure it and we've all done silly things when we were in in in, in a upset and so having 
a sort of written guide to uh, keep to protect us from ourselves. That's what Blair Singer, one of my main teachers, talked about. Right, that sounds very wise, Wendelin. What's your what, what's your take on it? Um, on how to how to how to manage the the human element in what would otherwise be perfect enterprises. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay, so I'm just going to come with the solution now. <laughs> um, so for me. Uh, it all starts from the beginning, and you were talking about school uh, and the role that school can play. Um, I think this respect for each other needs to be generated from the very beginning. Um, and I, I don't want that, I don't mean that to start, uh, you know, that's not only something that happens in a Montessori environment, that should happen in every school, learning, educational environment. Once we come to realize how we're all interconnected, interdependent, um, and once we really develop this, this respect for one another, perhaps then we can work more efficiently with one another towards achieving what we all want to achieve, just from, from, different, from different angles, but what we actually all want to achieve. I think that's a great insight about the the importance of of connecting and staying connected. And um, obviously, in some organizations, it's hard to keep that going. You know, people develop silos of interest or cliques of influence and so on. but it's it's constant effort, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, and I think, yeah. um, uh, interestingly, I was just reading a blog post about um a survey that was done at a Montessori nursery of the parents. And one of the reasons why uh, parents were choosing the Montessori nursery is um, because they uh, hoped it would teach their children to be independent. Now, independence is really important. We need to be able to stand on our own feet. But actually, what we also really need is to be interdependent. And I think that is what would help us moving forward as we all try and achieve um, you know, a, a better world, a better place to live in. It's it's not just independence, but interdependence. And that often is lacking in education. It's very interesting because in schooling, we're told that we need to do it by ourselves. Absolutely. Don't, 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 don't copy, don't work, don't Absolutely. cheat. Whereas in the real world, collaboration is the only way to get stuff done. Absolutely. In so during activism and otherwise. Absolutely. So during lockdown, my daughter was um, uh, doing online schooling, and the children were told that they weren't. So when they had their lessons on their iPads at home, um, the children were told that they weren't allowed to talk to their friends in on WhatsApp whilst the lesson was ongoing. So even worse than in the classroom, where you're not allowed to talk to each other but you do, or you slip each other a note or whatever, you know, maybe that's a little bit old fashioned, but, <laughs> um, you know, in this lockdown situation where they were completely isolated as it was, the last connection with their peers was also taken away from them. They weren't allowed to talk to each other on WhatsApp. So how do we, how do we promote collaboration when, as you say, Merlin, in school, Actually, that's completely taken away. I would go further regarding school. I've been reading quite a lot of John Taylor Gatto, G-A-T-T-O books. 
and he talks about the schooling dumbing people down literally and i'm a little bit cynical but i'm reading his books and going, no <laughs> really 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 shocking and the guy won teacher of the year three years in a row in new york city teacher of the year in new york state at all his award ceremonies he was lambasting the compulsory schooling system and saying that only a quarter of the money gets spent on schools and teachers and books and the rest goes on admin and yeah i won't bore you the details but yeah john taylor gatto really very interesting blue what do you think is the is is happening in your circles you know are is there reaching out and being independent so is there interdependence understood or are some people kind of like i'm going to dig this cave and you know get out of my way <laughs> or i how does how do the dynamics work on the front lines um it's kind of all varies depends on the people um there's real there's kind of really amazing things that happen when people pull together um like you know digging the tunnels and stuff that takes so many people and so much work and time um and yeah i think it's like people everyone is 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 trying to kind of fight the same thing to achieve the same thing and when that's is remembered and recognized it's kind of really amazing collaboration happens but sometimes there's kind of a little bit of conflict or you know people have tiffs um that's not so good i think <laughs> um in yeah my school that i went to uh my secondary school was really like the ethos was kind of mutual respect and you know, everyone is a person and deserves what, you know, what a person deserves, human rights, and to be listened to. Um, but it kind of been bureau bureaucratized, I don't know what that word is, um, by the time I went. Uh, so it, there were kind of some not-so-good teachers and, and trying to up the exam scores and stuff. Um, yeah, so I think this, like, you know, that's the ethos that we want like mutual respect and kind of letting children be free and how they want to be and just kind of you know list witnessing that but it often gets like sidetracked it can be a bit tokenistic at times mm. right so you have the school motto and you know respect yeah. for everyone and and you know at friday assembly and in, in the, the the gym hall we all sort of stand there and and say oh yes we respect others but how does this actually get demonstrated and do the teachers demonstrate that same sort of respect to the children and if not then how will the children learn mm, exactly. what respect really is if it's not being role modeled and if it's not being demonstrated if the teachers put this i am superior because i hold the knowledge you know mm. how do the children learn really learn how do they internalize respect for others and this this sense of interdependence you could also look at the respect for the cleaning staff and the catering staff at the school. Absolutely. And without them, it would be a messy place. So it, we're all, yeah, just the yeah. teachers being an example of, of, of respect. Yeah. Barbara, how did um, Montessori herself talk about the relationship between independence and interdependence? I don't think she has ever made um, specific connections because between independence and interdependence. However, the whole tenant of the principles which underpin cosmic education, which is really the value base 
the bigger picture of Montessori education is, the key thing is about interdependence. And the way how we first show it or demonstrate it to the children is actually looking at evolution and how each species have evolved as situation has changed or conditions of life have changed and um, one couldn't exist without the other. So we go back to nature to help children understand that the soil is richer for the work that the worms do in bringing air into the soil. It's very, very simplistic little things that we demonstrate to the children quite early on to be able to understand that we are connected and, um, you know, there's often an impulse in a small child to squash the worm because they get a bit frightened. And it is a real important element of the um, work that we do with young children is to show them that we value the worm because the worm makes a huge contribution um, to what happens in the big wide world. The other element um, of interdependence is also being able to embrace and support people who have failed. You know, this idea of control of error within the equipment can also apply to our relationships with others. And if we see our error as an opportunity to learn rather than um, having done something wrong, we can learn from how our friends manage situations. We can learn by offering them help and support and empathy when things don't go so well for them. Um, so the, for me, control of error has got far-reaching um, aspects of um, pedagogical teaching rather than just fixing an activity that hasn't worked or learning from an activity that hasn't worked. And I really value that opportunity of learning from the error because it also demonstrates to the children that the teachers um, are not perfect. But if a teacher can apologize to a child and say, I'm sorry, I didn't understand. I'm sorry, I have hurt you. I'm sorry, I didn't think about this in this way. It actually has a huge impact on the relationship between the child and the adult. And that relationship then provides model for other relationships. Therefore, the child has got more capacity to embrace humanity in, its all, in all its colors. And I think that's what you are finding on your, um, when you are working together, mm -hmm. that um, it is the common purpose shared by all that helps you to sometimes overlook the little niggly things of the human relationships. Mm. Yeah. Um, Merlin, you're also um, a co-founder and director of Cam Lab, um, which, as I understand it, accelerates social startups in Asia. So if we're going to have interconnectedness, it has to be global. So what are you finding are the kind of insights about how it's different to be a social entrepreneur in other countries and in other, you know, economic situations. It's very early days in that company and we are just getting the first cohort going. The it, We're working in Pakistan and they are neighbours with China and the, him, him, the melting glaciers 
um, are a potential problem. They are one of the big bread baskets of the world and they've got similar things. There's a, an organization doing recycling. There's an organization working with prosthetic limbs and they've got similar challenges, similar aspirations. They're humans just like us and the idea is to give them some mentorship and some guidance from people who are been doing similar things but just a, a few years further down the road and uh, also providing them with capital so that they can get their socially minded businesses up and running faster. Yeah, it's interesting how um, social activism as well. Um, I understand that Extinction Rebellion Blue is, is um, it originated in the UK, is that right? Mm -hmm. But it's, it's now spreading globally. Yeah. And it's got, got interest everywhere. It's amazing, like, you know, Merlin, that you started your charity as a an echo of what was happening in Haiti and it had been for 10 years. And um, is that right? And then, now, and then now you're sort of turning around and helping people in Pakistan. So um, this kind of global networking, I mean, it's really essential to accelerating the impact of social entrepreneuring. Um, what do you think, I mean, what, where do you think the need is greatest? I mean, I, I know it's everywhere, but where do you think, if, if you had to say, where should we focus our social entrepreneurial capital? Um, what's your feeling about that? Is it just popping up everywhere or are there sort of centers of, of, of urgent need which out, outweigh others? There's a very nice adage of think global, act local which resonates for me. And I think one of my, one of my big, thing, big goals, which I've not made much progress on, is harnessing different people's knowledge and experiences because people are facing similar challenges, albeit slightly different, all over the world. And my vision is a system like free and open source software where you have sort of version one, version 1.1, version 1.2, and it evolves and different people are inputting. And what I would really like is for different people to help with the idea of a, it could be sort of a gardening business or a haircutting business, or it could be a charity to reuse bikes and having harnessing the power of different people experimenting and working we tried this it didn't work we tried this it did work and for the uh, sort of an iterative improvement in sort of best practice i'm not saying it, everything needs to be a carbon copy it seems sensible to me to harness the brains and experiences of, of people all over the world rather than just my backyard yeah i think that's great well if you need um want to chat that one through um, <laughs> i'm available <laughs> so um uh, your network is so vast berlin and it includes you know activists as well as innovators um is there one issue that's energizing the network at the moment i mean i'm sure it's it fluctuates but um is it climate change or is it uh, is it something else it is not that i i don't have any one thing that I can say this is the, the the key to unlock everything else. My belief is to do what you are passionate about, um, both as an activist and in enterprise, because you need to have uh, 
power to keep on going when the tough times happen and or um, which which on the down times which do happen the idea of the interconnected nature of life and so topsoils is a major problem um eating animals and sort of chopping down rainforests and sort of education there are there are so 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 many different things which are inter interrelated and so rather than thinking oh we're all doomed or rather than thinking as i mentioned at the start it's just little poor little me there's not i can't make a difference pick just pick one thing that is close to your heart find the people who are doing stuff that resonates with you and get involved get active i would say yeah well what what is the role of education in in catalyzing this activism um, and social change? I mean, you have kids of your own, Merlin. So, what is, is there anything in their education that's shaping their attitudes? Are they, or do they just want to be like dad? Or not like dad? <laughs> it's, uh, it's true. Um, well, I mentioned John Taylor Gatto, and he said that the compulsory schooling system started at the time of the industrial revolution and it was a blend of the hindu caste system and the prussian education system and with the hindus you got 10 percent of the population ruling the other 90 percent and i mentioned sort of designed to dumb us down and it's designed it's my take to make us cogs for the machine and it was to do with separating families Whereas normally you'd either go and work in the family business or you'd go and work for a good friend's business, be it sort of, you know, painting or carpenting or whatever. And the schooling system where you have the bell ring and it's like all change, it might be that I'm in the middle of reading a really, really good book. Or I might be writing a good book or I just might be in the zone with something. But no, it's all pring, right, all, all change. Nothing's important to stay stuck with. And so... I would say the education system is entirely against sort of activism and against self-empowerment and against collaborative empowerment, as we were saying earlier. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't see much goodness there. I mean, you have got sort of green heroes and sort of recycling groups in schools and you have got schools raising money for charities and for campaigns. I'm not saying there's nothing there. But um, what Gatto says is that the system is designed very carefully so that even if you are a fantastic teacher with heart in a good school with heart, your hands are pretty tied. That's my not-so-positive outlook. Yeah, yeah, that sounds... You hear that from lots of quarters. Uh, sounds like reforming education itself would be a good place to start if you wanted to have <laughs> max, maximum impact. And um, I mean, Montessori herself was an activist, an innovator, and a, a founder of enterprises, all the schools and, and training organizations that she set up. But my feeling is that a lot of, of her success and yours comes down to personal qualities, you know, a certain charisma, integrity, a sense of inner peace, maybe a kind of wake up every morning and have the same sense of purpose that gets you going. Um, I mean, anyone with a conscience can develop, uh, I mean, can join an activist group or can develop themselves or work in a social enterprise, but it takes certain leadership qualities to build a following. 
the way that um, you did when you were building your charity and the way uh, that Montessori certainly did. So I'm pretty convinced that you, like Maria, have those qualities. But would you describe yourself in that way? Are you a leader? Are you, <laughs> without being, you know, too modest, <laughs> how, how would you, how would you, what role do you think that those leadership qualities play in, in the, uh, in, in the activist arena? Leadership is important and sort of pulling people together. There are various models such as sociocracy for finding something that we're happy with for the, for the time being, right? Because consensus is when everyone agrees, which can be tricky to get. Whereas sociocracy says, okay, I'm not really agreeing, but we can try it for a, for a, for a few weeks, a few months. I'm, I'm okay with it. There's, I, I, I was headhunted by the army at um, Sixth Form College after doing a, a couple of days thing with, with the college. Um, I have got some sort of leadership thing in me. There's also playing to different people's strengths. So some people are sort of starting, good at starting things. Some people are better at sort of, but, but the people who are good at starting things are not so good on the details and following through and making things happen. So when you've got a certain number of people, you can, again, collaborate and work well together using your individual strengths. So in activism, I might be good at writing press releases um, or I might be good at speaking to the press. I might be quite happy to sort of, you know, just speak and not get phased and, and get scared speaking in public someone else who might be petrified at speaking in public, but might be really good with strategy and really good with motivating people. And yeah, as I said, there's no one way. And I mean, one of the things as far as sort of setting things up, there's a degree of sort of bloody mindedness and determination because yeah, I mean, tricky times happen, be it in a sort of a activism role or a social business or just a normal business or parenting a life. I mean, yeah, stuff happens. It's <laughs> giggles going on in the studio here. Um, so yeah, a degree of sort of sticking at it and, uh, keeping going. And that's where the vision and the passion, um, is important so that you're really doing something that turns you on and inspires you and gets you out of bed in the morning. Yeah. Barbara, how did, did Maria, perceive her own leadership qualities and, and, and what, what impression did she leave about herself as, as a leader? What a challenging question. Um, she definitely seen herself as an important person who can influence yeah. how education unfolds, who can influence how um, uh, children are educated, how they develop as human beings. She could see the responses from the people around her that um, her words had huge appeal and that they were able to connect with others. Um, unfortunately, her life history um, tells us that she was also phenomenally good at falling out with people. <laughs> so there has been something about the way how she perceived herself, which her, made her vulnerable and therefore often reached an area of conflict with other people. And I personally believe that that is one of the reasons why Montessori is not 
more widely accepted around the world because she was not able to draw on the strengths of all the people who admired her. Um, because one, if you buy into somebody else's ideas, you need to give people freedom to develop those ideas further. She was very, very keen to keep the ideas wrapped up in the mystique of um, the Montessori approach, in the mystique of her um, writing. Um, and I think that has not served us well, but the recent events in the Montessori movements actually have demonstrated that it is possible to work really well collaboratively across the training organizations across countries. And I would hope that we can do that um, in the future more so that more children around the world can benefit from her wisdom and uh, from learning about the world which is interconnected, where we all have um, a capacity to contribute to the solidarity and social justice in order to create more harmonious world in which we live. Okay, that seems like a good place to stop for now. Thanks again to Barbara Isaacs and David Getman and to our guests, Wendelin Bellinger, Blue Sanford and Merlin Matthews. Goodbye for now and keep listening. Mm-hmm.